If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to the X-Cast. The truth is in here. Covering Apocrypha, the 16th episode of the third season. I'm Darren Mooney. I'm filling in for Tony Black. And joining me again is Christopher Irish. How are you, Chris? Very good. Nice to be here again. It is indeed. It feels like it was only yesterday that we were talking. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we're talking about the second part of the third, or the, basically the second uh, mythology two-parter, as long as you don't count the three episodes, the bridge, the second and third season, uh, which is Apocrypha, which basically picks up on the threads last from last week's episode. It follows the uh, the first encounter that Mulder and Scully have with the Black Oil. At this point, Krychek has been infected uh, with the Black Oil. Mulder is traveling with him back to the United States, while Scully is also trying to investigate, trying to reignite interest in the death, the the case investigating the murder of her sister while also uh, trying to investigate the shooting of assistant director Skinner um, so there's a lot happening here uh, and we'll sort of jump right in but first of all Chris if you were to rate Apocrypha out of 10 what would you rate it? Uh, I'd probably give it about the same as the last one like 5 or 6 yeah perfect I, I would probably go for about a 6 or a 7 myself actually I have to, have to admit it's it's a pretty solid two-parter I think as far as two-parters go it's like it's it's not as good as the the one that bridges the second and third season for me and I actually I have a, I have a huge soft spot for Nicene 731 whereas Piper Mru and Apocrypha are, are, are they're good they're just they don't really click for me in the way that the others do I think yeah it seems like uh, the storylines were not quite as gelled together. Like it kind of bounced. I mean, obviously have Mulder bounced across the globe in a very short seeming amount of time. <laughs> and yeah, it is the international jet setting Mulder uh, everywhere from like North Dakota to Hong Kong um, while following this sort of single thread. But it is, it's uh, and to New York as well and back. It is very much all over the globe. It's, it's a, it is a very kind of adventurous globe trotting episode. And I wonder actually, part of me wonders if this is, because we talked a little bit um, in the last episode about how, like, the X-Files sort of reflected contemporary anxieties and contemporary uncertainties and stuff like that. And about how, like, the black oil was, you know, it was it was like Carter's idea of evil as something that infects and corrupts us as seen in episodes like Grotesque and Empedocles. Uh, but it's also, you know, maybe a metaphor for, like, AIDS or Ebola, which were very much topical concerns at the time. And I wonder, like, watching the third season... You have a lot of emphasis on like international conspiracies where you have like, obviously at the end of the second season, you have that great sequence where there's this chain of phone calls through the various like Axis countries where it's like Japan calling Germany, calling Italy, calling the cigarette smoking man um, in this sort of game of telephone. Uh, But you have also like in obviously Nicene 731, you have this idea that the Japanese have been like conducting their own sort of secret conspiracy involving this like alien plot that's taking place. And even in like, Piper Maru and Apocrypha, you have this sort of weird sense the French are doing their own thing as well. Like, there's a, there's a syndicate, there's a moment with the syndicate in Apocrypha where the well-manicured man is like, well, how the hell did the French find out this was happening? They just kind of pop in, like, um, I think it really comments on the whole global aspect of society. Like, back then, that's kind of when the internet was kicking off, so the world was a lot smaller, but, like, you were also nervous about what other nations are doing like uh, politicians are still clearly worried about that you have this sort of like it's it's easier to get around or at least in the 90s after the end because during the cold war you obviously had this big divide between us and then and them and you had this sort of like idea of dividing the world between two poles whereas like in the 90s after the fall of the berlin wall like it seemed almost like international barriers had collapsed 
you're quite right that like Mulder travels a lot in this two-parter. Like he journeys, he hops on planes. He's he's flying even within the United States. He's flying between like Dakota and New York and Washington. But he's also flying over to Hong Kong as if it's no big deal as well. And hopping on a flight back, it sort of it hints at this idea that like borders and barriers and boundaries that used to exist don't really exist anymore. And it's kind of it's something that the X Files sort of touches on repeatedly. Like you you have obviously you have like those those really awkward subculture episodes and, and and when I say that people know immediately what I'm talking about it's episodes like Teza dos Bichos the infamous awful one or Telico you know or like El Mundo Giro the idea of like this this idea of a shrinking world where you have these subcultures that exist within the, the borders of America or whatever but you also have this sense that like uh, national identity is breaking down as well and like this sense of like even within this episode even within Apocrypha and Piper Maru there's this interesting sort of anxiety that the X Files feels about stuff like, um, conf- uh, you know, kind of conformity, and the idea of like fitting in and blending in. There's a moment where Scully goes to visit Captain Johansson in Piper Maru, and you get that wonderful establishing shot of like the base where all the houses have been built according to specifications. It looks like suburbia. It looks like somebody's copied and pasted the same house over and over again. And even at the end of of Apocrypha, you have like this really almost ironic mirroring of that where you have Mulder and Scully going to North Dakota and you just have this like smattering of like silos old missile silos scattered across the landscape and Scully's like there must be 200 um there must be 200 missile silos here and it's like they're all identical and and sort of indistinct and it's impossible to know which is which because everything is now mass produced and everything is on such a large scale that it's possible to get lost and it's kind of interesting to see the X-Files dealing with this idea of like globalization and mass production and the idea that the world is like at once infinitely large and vast and impossible to find what you're looking for in but also paradoxically at the same time you can hop on a plane and travel around the world in the space of 13 hours and hop back as if nothing's happening and like what that means for us as a society and it it has like I think you're right I think last week you mentioned like the X-Files has aged remarkably well with stuff like this and I think like even that sort of anxiety about globalization is is something that's very relevant at the moment yeah it's still i mean even like i was saying back in the 90s when it was just kind of cresting into that kind of worldview it's really like it's a double-edged sword especially in the x-files episodes like if you're not trying to impart um what we're dealing with as a nation and a culture it's just the way the world was like you were saying how it's very uniform and you know there's a separation between countries but now that the world is kind of meshing together, it's clearly making it more dangerous for uh, humanity in general for the X-Files purposes. Because the more connective they are, like like when the, uh, when the oil, it took it, what, 50 years to get from the bottom of the ocean up to the surface, and from then it took a couple days to get where it was going. <laughs> to get from, like, the Pacific Ocean to Hong Kong to the silo in North Dakota. Like, everything is so much more connected. And it's, it kind of, it's, it's interesting because it, it reminds me of like that viral metaphor it's like that wonderful um the idea like the virus infecting the human body where it infects a cell and then that cell spreads and it's all connected and it's it's almost like that but on a social level where like the black oil hops from one cell to another except instead of hopping from one cell like a virus does it hops from one person and instead of moving from one part of the body it moves from one part of the globe to another it's a nice little sort of metaphor it reminds me of have you seen um is it rise of the planet of the apes yeah, I think I have seen that. Yeah, at the end of the credits, they do this sequence where they follow the spread of the virus through, like, plane flights um, over the closing credits, where you have, like, the, the basically the lines going from one city to another, and then, you know, five lines come out and they go somewhere else. It basically shows how this, like, virus spreads from, like, one pilot all the way across to decimating mankind. And it's sort of like, it feels like the X-Files is sort of doing something like that in the context of the 90s, where you have everything very close together and everything very integrated and like whether or not that's something that makes us anxious it makes us sort of nervous a little bit i think which is it's kind of again the, the roots of great horror the social commentary is pretty spot on but anyway so we'll jump into talking about the the episode itself because um, it opens with um like a lot of the x-files two-parters it doesn't jump directly back into the action uh you know the actual the cliffhanger from the last episode it actually has a nice little the teaser to the second part serves as a sort of an interlude where it's like august in 19 um 53 
where a sailor uh, from the, the Zeus Faber is basically telling his story, one of the survivors. And you have this sort of interesting sort of conversation. And so sort of, we talked about it a little bit last year, last week, when we we're talking about like the, the living memory and the idea of like what happens when the last person who remembers something dies and how the X-Files is about memory and how it feels sort of anxious about that. Because you have a line from the, the sort of survivor where he's talking to the people who are taking a statement. He's like, I'm the last man who knows what killed those men aboard that submarine. And, you know, Mulder, Bill Mulder, who is listening to this story, says that, you know, we are here to hear your story and to see that justice is served. And, you know, that that's ironic because the audience knows that the cigarette smoking man and Bill Mulder won't actually do that. But it does suggest that there's some power in bearing witness to, to what happened and to recording, like, historical injustice. And in the context of the 90s, it's worth noting that, like, this would have been around the time that, say, Schindler's List would have been released, for example, that you would have had like Steven Spielberg doing this project to record the testimony of like Holocaust survivors, because people were sort of wary of the fact that at this point, people who had survived the Second World War were obviously in their 70s and 80s, but they were passing away. And so like, people no longer had that direct tether to history. So you have that question of who remembers this? I mean, I think there's a line in, it might be The Blessing Way, or it might also be Paperclip, uh, where I think Alfred, uh, sorry, Albert says, you know, a memory survives only, only as long as the last person who remembers it. And there's a sort of a, like, at, in the 90s, you were looking at people who had lived through the Second World War, which was this hugely, hugely influential thing, I think, for, like the world as a whole because it the second world war is what defines the world that we now live in it's the moment where the united states became the dominant global power where britain sort of became this background player a little bit where europe you know sort of realized that we have to come together like as more than one nation we have to never let this happen again it sort of it defined the political order you had like the the seeding of the colonies in like the you know the far east and the middle east the surrendering of power to local governments and the second world war sort of like in many ways kind of defined the the global order as as we understand it today and there's a question watching the x-files of like the people who helped establish that global order and who helped build the world that we're living in now, they're they are all dying at this point in the third season, 50 years on from the end of the Second World War. So how do we properly remember that? How do we properly come to terms with what our parents and what our fathers in particular sort of experience as part of that? And it's an interesting to see the show sort of literalize that in a way. Yeah, and I like how it kind of parallels not only the, uh, the real-life story of how... Uh, the nation's changed from World War II, but clearly uh, Chris Carter took in inspiration from that because the mythology arc with the oils, especially, it starts at the same time. So uh, you're seeing, like, there's a lot of parallels between how the nations evolved and progressed and then how the black oil evolved and progressed. And you have the syndicate and a cigarette smoking man. So it's really interesting. It, it does indeed. I mean, like, you know, throughout the mythology, there's obviously, it's, it's sort of tethered to, um, you know, the, the crash in Roswell, New Mexico. Although the cigarette smoking man says that wasn't really what happened. It was another crash around the same time because the mythology isn't complicated enough. But it is, it's very much like it's the end of the Second World War. And you see that in, like, obviously My Struggle 1, but you see it in, like, Travelers as well. There's a sense that, like, what the syndicate is in the X-Files really began to take root after the Second World War and after you had this sort of like process of industrialization taking place. And obviously like Paperclip and, um, you know, The Blessing Way make it clear that that's tied to stuff like bringing over the Nazi scientists to help, you know, with the, the, the Apollo project to put man on the moon. But I mean, even even here, for example, you have this debate about like the the atomic bomb, like the cover story for the, sh the you know, the, sh the uh, submarine that was sent investigating was that it was like looking for the third nuclear bomb that was sent to Japan. And like the radiation burns as well, it sort of suggests that there's a connection to the world that we're living in now back to like the Second World War as a whole. And it, it's worth noting that I think around the time that this was happening, there was a big like culture war debate happening in the States over the Smithsonian's exhibit around the Enola Gay and like the question of like 
how we discuss or how we talk about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, whether we discuss, like, were they necessary to end the war? Were they unnecessary? Were they politically motivated? And and sort of this big argument about whether you can have that conversation respectfully with regards to the veterans who obviously gave their lives in, in protection of the country. And it, it was this big, like, simmering thing that was happening. And I suspect looking at the, the way the third season returns time and again to the Second World War, that it was sort of Carter was dealing with sort of a similar, he was working through sort of this idea, like metaphorically and, and allegorically with this sort of return, re- recurring preoccupation with like Nazis and the atomic bomb and like Japan, which was the other Axis power as well. Yeah, that comes up a lot too. Uh, and I remember an episode where uh, old World War II Japanese scientists were experimenting on a extraterrestrial. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. In a train. No, oh, I can't remember the episode name though. Oh, that was that was nicely in seven three one. That was the yeah, other yeah, sort it, of yeah, the other sort of third season um, two parter. And it's actually interesting. One of the things I like about the third season as a whole is that it's a remarkably well structured season of television because you have like the the season seems to fold in on itself. It it sort of has this. It opens with two mythology episodes, you know, which are like the Blessing Way and Piper Paperclip, and it closes with two, which are like Wet Wired and Talitha Kumi. But it has also these two parters in the middle of the season, which are like eight episodes apart and four episodes from the middle, which sort of reflect one another because they both. You're right that they both deal with the the legacy of the Second World War. In Nicene Seven Three One, it's like it's literally it's the same like you know japanese scientists who were conducting experiments on like prisoners during the second world war who are doing this right now basically or who are their descendants or their information or research is being used and here it's like the guys that we sent to pick up you know that we said we sent to pick up the atomic bomb were also sort of complicit in this thing that was happening so you have this nice little mirroring and symmetry that runs the season which is remarkably well structured for like back at a time we talked about last week we talked about like you know the idea of serialization and continuity but back when television wasn't really doing this sort of intricate structuring it's really nice to see that in the third season as a whole yeah and i also like how i know in america particularly we have a problem with looking back at our past and kind of glossing over things as a society i mean it's a pretty common problem <laughs> these days but where you have this romanticized view of what things were like but when you actually dig into it like with the enola gay story or even in this episode of the x-files they had people dying in a submarine because of a bad military judge but like you keep we keep bringing up this stuff how the past comes up and how you deal with it but there's always that question, like, is this the right thing to do or not? I mean, clearly, the syndicate and people like that are always trying to steer it to their narrative. So it's really interesting how that plans out. Cool. All right. So we, we jump then from that teaser back to the present day. We have Mulder and Krychek who are basically, there. you know, Mulder, they've managed to get into the country. They're driving along and then they're ambushed. They're sort of run off the road in one of those great sort of X-Files conspiracy thriller narrative sequences. You know, there are lights on the road. There are swerving cars. There are men with guns. There's like no clear jurisdiction going on, but it doesn't really matter because they've got guns and they're taking what they want. But you have this sort of like uh, this wonderful moment where they, they seem to capture Krychek but 
Krychek then uses this sort of lightning flash, this radiation flash, which is something that the Black Oil doesn't really do that frequently between now and I think it is the eighth season, the episode is a Viennan where it does it again. But it's a nice little sort of connection it gives you sort of between the, the atomic bomb and the Black Oil, where it kind of it has the power to send this radiation. And I think Scully at one point even compares it to like the power of a nuclear bomb. That's true. And uh, also I think they did it in, um, in the last episode. Uh, that was when Krychek and Mulder were confronting each other and Geraldine got shot and then um, the French yeah, yeah, wife right. shows up and zaps all these <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, groups of heavily armed yeah. agents. <laughs> yeah. It's like, nope, you're not going. <laughs> no, yeah, um, this is what true power looks like, uh, which is, is nice because you get that sense in the third season like that as as dangerous as these the government is, like as powerful as these forces are at work in the, in the government and has, how easily as they could crush like Mulder and Scully and shoot Skinner in a restaurant. There's a sense that there are forces at work that like make them seem completely useless, which is fascinating. And it's also kind of terrifying as well. Yeah, and it's also really kind of scary how um, Smoking Man handles it when he tells people like, yeah, just get rid of those bodies, they're done. They're still sitting there breathing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, that's the prognosis, isn't it? I think it's the line as well. It's, it's, yeah, it's a great smoking man moment. It's a wonderful sort of like illustration of how little he actually cares about people. And then while that's happening, basically, so Mulder, you know, wakes up in a hospital. Scully tells Mulder that Skinner is also in a hospital because he's just been shot, uh, but also that she's managed to identify that Skinner's shooter is Cardinal. She doesn't know that yet, but it's the same person who uh, shot and killed her sister, uh, which is is interesting. uh, Because it kind of sets up this theme that runs through the two-parter, and arguably through the season as a whole, but in in these two episodes in particular, which is this idea of, like, retribution and closure and justice and how we sort of get these things. Because you have... In this two-parter you have, and we talked a little bit last time about like the splitting up of Mulder and Scully and how they do sort of two separate things where, you know, Scully goes off and she sort of investigates with Johansson and then she gets tied up in the Skinner case, whereas Mulder is off chasing Krychek and then he gets sort of embroiled with the well-manicured man and trying to get the DAT tape and how there's sort of two different threads sort of within the episode, but they're linked thematically because they're both about, they both find them confronting people who have basically hurt them in the past, who have caused them suffering and pain. Mulder comes face to face with Krychek, the man who killed his father. Scully finds herself tracking down Cardinal, the man who killed her sister. And you have this interesting sort of like parallel between the two stories, because this is the thing when I watch The X-Files that I kind of wonder about, and it comes up in, I think in in The Blessing Way, when, you know, when Bill Mulder talks to his son, um, you know, on the table in that wonderful sort of like Christmas light scene uh, where they're overlaid sort of uh, over that sort of like starry backdrop. Uh, I think maybe it's actually Deep Throat who has that conversation where he talks about how like truth without justice is meaningless basically. And so you have this idea that it's not enough to simply know the truth. You have to actually find a way to hold the people responsible to account. And in Piper Maru and Apocrypha, you have this interesting sort of challenge about how you hold these people to account. Because like, Mulder at several points over the two-parter has Krychek dead to rights. He has a gun pointed at him. And obviously in Apocrypha as well, you have Scully pointing a gun at Cardinal. But there's this this discussion that takes place about how killing Krychek and killing Cardinal wouldn't actually represent justice. And there's a nice moment where the well-manicured man, when he meets Mulder later on in, in sort of New York, is saying, you know, I'm curious, if you've encountered Krychek, why didn't you kill him then? And and the question sort of hangs there. And it's like, the answer to that is because killing Krychek there wouldn't be justice, because it wouldn't expose the truth, because it wouldn't reveal what was really happening. It might give Mulder some satisfaction in the moment, but it wouldn't actually accomplish anything or explain what his father died for. And you have that sort of later conversation with Scully when she does manage to track down Cardinal, where she says, you know, I thought when we found him, this man that killed Melissa, that, that when we brought him to justice, I'd feel some kind of closure. But the truth is that no court, no punishment is, is ever enough. And it's it's fascinating to see the show kind of dealing with these big questions. Because uh, those are like philosophy questions as much as like procedural questions. I don't know if they're quite aware of the syndicate as broad as they are and everything like that's still going to be coming down the pipe later on. But they know there's something bigger at stake. And these two guys that they did catch are just kind of, you know, low-level henchmen. And it took them this long to catch them. So. <laughs> Probably not entirely yeah. satisfying. <laughs> 
<laughs> and there is like because because it happens throughout as well. There's like a the recurring throughout the show is the question of like Mulder looks for the truth all the time. Mulder's searching for the truth. He believes the truth is out there. He believes he can find the truth. And there's this kind of it's never really articulated, but it's sort of hinted at, which is like what will Mulder do when he gets the truth? What happens? What's the end game here? Like let's say through some miracle Mulder has the truth in his hands. What happens then? Like what's what what's the next step for him? And the show kind of never answers that but it also acknowledges that that's a fair question that Mulder himself may not know the answer to yeah I think he toys with that a lot but I know his ultimate like if he really wants the truth he's had it at a couple points in the show where he's like he knew the truth but he couldn't you know prove it so it it's obviously not something that he needs for his own uh, personal gain so he wants everyone else to realize the truth too so it's kind of noble in his part like he didn't just see, well, that's the truth, and moved on to other <laughs> FBI. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, so that's what that was. Um, it's like, like yeah, all right, I'm uh, going to go do the fraud unit now. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Tell Skinner he doesn't have to worry about getting shot in a diner anymore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so so basically, yeah, so so Smolder is sort of pursuing along that line. But you you get this really cool sequence where they, where Mulder uses the lone gunman. Um, to try and get the DAT tape, which is really nice. It's a really cool sequence because you have them skate. You have like it's Lone Gunman on Ice, which is a show that I would absolutely love to see. <laughs> but you have this like it's really well done by uh, Kim Manners, who directs the episode. But you get the three of them sort of like doing like the worst Mission Impossible impression ever. It's like Byers is skating on ice, but he's still wearing his trench coat and it's still closed. Um, <laughs> or- <laughs> Frohickey like, just is Frohickey. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's fantastic. It's like they're the least undercover agents ever, but it's it's adorable and it, it uses them really well. And I think there's a really great moment. I'm not sure if it's Frohickey or if it's Langley, but one of them makes the point that, you know, you should use us more often, Mulder. And there's a sense watching the episode that it's like the writers are going, actually, we really should use these characters more often. Because I think, is this the first time that we really see them in the field? I think so. Like, you don't usually just see them in their little dungeon with their computers in the dark room, but this is like when Mulder's like, okay, I'll give you something. Like, we need to to do this, and I can't do it alone, so come on, guys. (laughs) You get your junior G-Man badges for the day. Um, But I do, and it kind of, I wonder if that was like a a sort of a stepping stone to like using them later on in, um, obviously in the fifth season episode, Unusual Suspects, and then later on again in Three of a Kind, and then like a springboard to their own show, because this is the point where you realize... Actually, watching the lone gunman do stuff is really fun. Yeah. Like I said in the last one we talked about, like they are kind of a comedic element, but they're not dumbed down. Like they obviously know what they're doing. They just are, uh, you know, figuring it out. Like they're not trained like Mulder. So everything they know, they had to glean off the internet or just figure out for themselves. So I always thought that was admirable for them. And and then also, obviously, they, they try and steal the DAT tape that tape from the locker but it's not there because Krychek is already or the black oil in the form of Krychek has already taken it and he sort of he, he offers it to the smoking man in return or in exchange for the location of the crashed UFO um, that obviously the alien wants to use to return home uh, which is interesting as well it's a nice sort of hook because it gives you again we talked a little bit about this last week but where it sort of it ties together a lot of the threads that have been running through the season so like the dat tape you know, disappeared at the end with Crycheck at the end of like Paperclip. And it's the kind of thing that like on another show you'd assume would just be forgotten about. Uh, but it's kind of nice that they sort of wanted to tie that up and sort of put a bow on it. And so it comes back around to the like, the you know, the cigarette smoking man just eight months or so after he managed to lose it and cause absolute chaos. I thought it was interesting, too, because when Krychek slaps the tape down at a cigarette smoking man, he was sitting in the dark smoking like he always does, but he's watching a World War Two movie so like there's an element of reminiscing for him and nostalgia too like the world that was and what he's doing to it (laughs) it is and it ties back into what we were talking earlier about like the the use of like the memory and memory of world war ii and stuff because the cigarette smoking man 
And I think he he's doing it as well when Mulder confronts him in uh, One Breath. I think he might also be watching another old black and white film, possibly about the Second World War. But for the cigarette-smoking man, he's watching like a sanitized, a literal black and white version of the Second World War, where there are neatly delineated heroes and villains. It's the standard narrative. It's not at all messy. You know, there's in this version of the Second World War that he's watching on television, it's highly unlikely that there are people who are suffering radiation burns or sort of deformities as a result of the dropping of atomic bombs there's been no moral compromise no nazis have been smuggled over to the u.s in order to help build the apollo program none of the research that was you know gleaned from experimenting on human people whether in concentration camps or in like the the asian areas occupied by japan has been used or sort of taken or exploited by the allies because they're the good guys so it's nice it's a very clever piece of like simple visual storytelling that tells you a lot that like the cigarette smoking man who is the villain of the piece is watching this sort of a very conventional very sanitized very how we like to remember the second world war being version of of events in contrast to what's actually happening around which is this sort of muddying and sort of exposure and sort of like uh you know sort of exploration of of what the real legacy of that conflict was which is very very good storytelling yeah i kind of wonder too if he had a a level of guilt or some kind of emotion response to that because he he is watching that, and in another episode, he's writing uh, fiction stories, and he has this, you know, there's obviously a desire to not be him, but, like, he's so embroiled in that, this core of this conspiracy, and he knows how rotten everything is, it's just, it ruined him. Like, he might have been a good person at some point, but, like, this whole thing just crushed him. He does, yeah, and, and you're right, when he does, like, the musings of a cigarette-smoking man in the fourth season, where it's revealed that he's, uh, is it, what... Bloodquirst is the name or something like that. It's got this Raoul Bloodquirst or something. But like where he's writing these pulpy narratives, there's a sense of like wanting to write his own, his own literal version of history almost, uh, which is, it's kind of very much in fitting with like the show's fascinations and sort of its, its recurring preoccupations. Uh, but yeah, it is, it's, it's a very nice character given moment that he's sitting down smoking a cigarette watching a World War II movie when Krychek strolls in and just sort of puts down the dat tape. Um, and I like that the cigarette smoking man doesn't try to strong arm the creature. He knows exactly, like even after the creature's handed him the dat tape, Mo, uh, sorry, the cigarette smoking man is aware of the fact that brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. He, he has to follow through on his promise to a certain extent. He can't like back out on the deal or he can't try and strong arm this thing. There's like Cardinal is behind the creature with a gun and he's like, put the gun down. It's like, what are you doing? Um, yeah, you have. Have all no has to do idea. Is flash and we're all but like everyone's dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it exactly. But yeah, so you you have then basically Mulder manages to get in touch with the well manicured man. I thought that was hilarious too. And then, <laughs> well, if there's, there's an wonderful... indent on this thing, we need to get all this technology stuff and lift the print. And Mulder's just wipes it with a pencil. He's like, there, see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hands it to Froig. It says, "Here's your high tech uh, high tech gadget." Um, it's it's really great and it's it's fantastic as well because it, it's it's a very clever bit it's a nice little joke it, it works very well in sort of in the in the themes of the show as well it's sort of it plays well with the lone gunman and it also gets you that nice scene with like the the well manicured man where he you know he he answers his his manservant uh, which is I love using the word manservant I don't get to use it often <laughs> enough but his manservant answers the phone at the office and you know the, the well manicured man has a very polite conversation with Boulder and then you know gives the instruction to and tell him to meet me you know at Central Park or whatever and he's like oh by the way when you're done have this line disconnected so you get you have this like I love the well manicured man because he has this 
this sort of like there's an interesting gulf between like who he is in the syndicate which is like he has to be this sort of ruthless person who is complicit in all these horrible things that have happened uh, but he's also he's not a dick about it like the smoking man is <laughs> like the smoking man is genuinely unpleasant to be around the well manicured man seems like he you know he'd probably pay for dinner if you were having dinner with him he's, he seems like a he's a sociable type he does what he has to do he's complicit in this horrible thing he understands that he has to lie and he's he's you know involved in murder and he's associating with terrible people but like even here, even before you get, like, the details about his life that you get, like, in, in the fourth season and in the movie in particular, you get a sense of the well-manicured man as somebody who at some stage thought of himself as decent. I mean, it's obviously this uh, alien invasion is something they can't stop. So I think uh, part of the syndicate is just trying to steer it so it kind of misses society as a whole. Like, it's something that kind of unfolds as the show goes on, but... And that's what I like about the villains in the X-Files, too, is, like, they're not just straight-up black-and-white bad guys. Like, you have some moments where even you sympathize with the cigarette-smoking man, even, but then you have a the well-manicured man who, you know, he's not a jerk. <laughs> yeah, and then and, and later on in the fourth season, and I know the fourth season mythology, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of it. I think it, it has some very serious problems in plotting and pacing. But one of the things I really like about it is that you get a sense of like the well-manicured man having a bit of a life outside of the syndicate. And you sort of see him as, as a human being. And there's like this this really clever sense, which I think, and I don't want to talk too much about the later seasons here, but I think the show sort of lost a little bit when it sort of moved past the syndicate as the primary opponents, which is this sense of like, the people who do horrible things, um, it's often the system that sort of does it. It's often like the existing status quo. Bad things happen because we have institutions that are in place and those institutions are you know, conditioned to behave in particular ways and to favor particular people. Oftentimes, the people who are responsible for maintaining those institutions, you know, are not the worst people in the world. They're not the literal devil. They're just people who are doing what they believe is right while trying to live their own lives and protect their own interests. And I, I think that the the syndicate, and particularly like in the third and fourth and fifth seasons, I think the X Files does a good job of like capturing that. We we never find out the well manicured man's name, but he feels like a he feels like a person, if that makes sense. Yeah, they just don't make him a dumb filler character they actually give him some depth uh which which is great so the well-manicured man and Mulder have a meeting in which the well-manicured man basically delivers a bunch of exposition which confirms pretty much everything that Mulder had already done and there's a really great moment where the well-manicured man's like i've given you all of this don't you have anything for me in return and Mulder's like actually all you did was just say all the stuff i was thinking out loud uh, yeah. Which is very rude, very rude, Mulder. Um, but it, it's it's entirely fair. And the well manicured man sort of draws Mulder's attention to the fact that anyone can be gotten to, which sort of twigs him to the fact that Skinner is possibly still a target. So Skinner goes, sorry, so Scully goes to check in on Skinner. She discovers that she's being moved. She manages to intercept the, the ambulance. She hops in the back of the ambulance. Cardinal attacks the ambulance, which leads to one of those nice sort of action set pieces that the show does very well and did very well even at the time when it didn't have a huge cinematic budget, where you have this sort of, he attempts to break into the ambulance, Scully forces him down, and she sort of chases him and sort of gets him down in an alleyway and then sort of has this moment where she almost considers shooting him. And it's a really great scene for Anderson. Anderson is always is great but there's this really tense moment between the two of them where she's confronting this person who killed her sister and you can tell that there's this sort of urge to want to kill him to want to pull the trigger um, yeah. but she doesn't which is is remarkable like she's a very morally grounded character but you know everyone has their conflicts but it's just watching her work through it even in that kind of a short burst of action it's really great how Gillian Anderson portrayed that and how Scully is as a character but, like, you didn't really see a lot of that in the mid to early 90s, like these, you know, kick butt women that can do stuff. And she didn't need Mulders to show up and catch the yeah. guy. So, <laughs> yeah. Like, no, I can do this. Yeah. I, I'm perfectly on top of this. You, you continue your wild goose chase, your nice meeting in Central Park uh, with the with the guy who's telling you everything you already know anyway. I'll, I'll take care of the real business here, if you don't mind. Uh, but yeah, they have this, then obviously the, the well, sorry, Mulder um, basically goes on a trip. They go to North Dakota where they go and investigate the silo, which is where 
the ship is being held. Um, the smoking man has moved the ship in order to make it more co- convenient for the creature to escape. And I actually love, you've got this wonderful sense of tension within the syndicate where, and it's very clear, obviously from back, you know, early in the third season with episodes like the blessing way and paper clip that like the, the cigarette smoking man is following his own agenda as much as he's following the agenda of the syndicate. So he's very clearly, he's moving the ship in order to like appease the alien because the alien's going to give him the dat tape back, which is grand because he's already told the syndicate back in paperclip that he blew up the dat tape, that there's no copy of it in existence. So he's covering his own ass, but you have this wonderful bit where he's explaining that he's moving the ship, not because he's going to surrender it to an alien intelligence, uh, but because, you know, he's worried that the French might try and seal it, which is a nice, it's a wonderful sort character beat i do wonder how he explains it when the ship presumably takes off and disappears into the night he's like ah maybe it was the french i don't know um <laughs> but, but it, it does at least this wonderful and it's it's interesting because i think this is like a really good iconic mythology sort of episode of the x-files where and we talked about like i think neither of us think this is our favorite mythology episode but it has a lot of stuff in it that we associate with the mythology so obviously the black oil and stuff but i also think of like the silo sequences in the episode as being like archetypal sort of x-files stuff it's Mulder and scully running through like dark concrete military corridors where everything looks vaguely the same and there's a hint that like Behind these doors, behind these doors that were built by the military industrial complex, there are all these dark secrets that are waiting to be broken out if they can just figure out which doors to look behind. It's a really, really great sequence. Yeah, and uh, I mean, even back when the cigarette smoking man was talking to the syndicate, they asked him, like, why didn't you just put it in Nevada with the other Roswell one? And there he gave him some half cocked uh, reason. For it, but like obviously the syndicate doesn't know everything, and he's clearly trying to steer them too. It's like the whole thing's such a mess. <laughs> I love that that line about area because it's very clearly Area Fifty One that they're talking about in Nevada. I like that his his response to that is that like basically, well, Area Fifty One is like everybody knows about Area Fifty One now. It's not yeah. it's not cool. It's like you know that's where the, all the uncool alien spaceships go. It's like you know. Because the press know about it, the conspiracy people know about it. It's like, if you really want to hide an alien spacecraft, trust me, North Dakota is where you want to be. And no one wants to go to North Dakota. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry if you're from North Dakota. (laughs) All I know about North Dakota, I learned from, uh, is it Fargo, the TV show, I think, has like several episodes and sort of arcs set in North Dakota. So that's all I know about the region. (laughs) I know know that it snows a lot. That's all that I know about it. But yes, yeah, so basically they go into the silo and they sort of, they pry around, they investigate, but they get caught. This is one of those great, like, really kind of frustrating X-Files moments where it's like Mulder and Scully are so close to the truth. They're so close to, like, having something because the audience knows that the ship is physically there and they know that Crycheck is also physically there. So they know that, like, what Mulder and Scully want is, like, within arm's reach. But at the end of the episode, the military swoop in, arrest them and basically take them off site. And it's it's one of those moments which i think maybe the show overplayed as it went on you'd have a lot of moments where Mulder and Scully are like this close to getting to the truth only to be like arrested and released at the end of it and you know don't manage to have what they're trying to get but i think that at this point in the show it's still fresh enough that it feels like a satisfying conclusion in some ways yeah and it is such a perfect x-files shot with the flashlights and the darkness like it's really moody and creepy <laughs> i also enjoyed the uh, room where Crycheck was in was room 1013, which is the production company. I was like, oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, Mulder and Scully should make a note of how often that number pops up and just be like, if we see <laughs> if we see that number like randomly written down, we should probably check that item first. And then you get that wonderful sort of like, okay, well, first of all, you get that sequence of Crycheck vomiting up. Oh, the, yeah. Uh, yeah, the black oil, which is like this wonderful sort of horrific sequence. I think that uh, the actor Nick Lee, who played Crycheck, has talked about like that being a horrific experience shooting that scene. I remember watching it when I was a kid and I just was so grossed out just by <laughs> hurling all this black oil. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> And it's it's the consistency of the thing as well, because it, it looks like it's not just liquid. It's like little lumps of stuff as well in uh, there. Cause, yeah. cause I, I think Mulder describes it as a medium for whatever it is that's moving through it, which is quite interesting. Because, I mean, later on it's implied that, like, the black oil is, like, the alien creature's natural form. Whereas I think in, in Apocrypha, it's actually meant to be the diesel oil from the crashed plane. Um, but it's still, like... 
even then there's a sense that there is something in the oil. It's sort of almost like a Lovecraftian. It's like you can't imagine what this alien thing is. It's actually so disgusting and so horrific um, that you can't actually see it. All you see is just the oil and the slime that it leaves behind, which is like almost it's it's first of all, as, as we pointed out, there's a lot of really effective sort of we're doing this on a budget on a television budget sort of storytelling here. But it's very effective because it's really unsettling. What you don't see is sometimes more horrific than what you do. No, completely. Like they could have, if they had money, just made some weird aliens looking creature, but I don't think it would have been as effective. Like just the creepiness of the oil, like it's not a substance you're not used to seeing in real life. So like you come across it and if you're an X-Files fan, like, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. Because I mean, later on, they do try and do an, an alien type creature, but it's telling that that alien type creature is nowhere near as iconic as the black oil. When people think of the X-Files, they think about, like, the bees, they think about, you know, the, the you know the, the triangular spacecraft, but they also think about the black oil, because the black oil is such a great, you're right, it's a great visual. It's easy to convey, and it, like, it sticks with you, and it's just disgusting watching it pour <laughs> yeah. out a crate check. <laughs> so, yeah, just sort of, like, keep going, and little strings of it as well, which makes, somehow uh. makes it ickier. Like, it would be one thing if it were just a blob and it was out, but it's like, no, there are probably still little bits of that still inside of him. And it's like, ugh. But it is, Not only it's, that, it's... but he's locked in the, the silo for God knows how long because no one's coming for him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nobody like, cares uh... about Crycheck. <laughs> <laughs> Again, poor rat boy, the universe's whipping boy. I, I like that because it's it's got that sort of like wonderful, almost like gothic horror quality to it. Like if, if the black oil is like this Lovecraftian kind of horror that you can't quite wrap your head around. Like the fate of Crycheck is like this Edgar Allan Poe gothic horror nonsense like walled up inside a tomb it's all these derelict sort of missile silos that as scully pointed out you know nobody's using them anymore so nobody has any reason to go there and crycheck who's been like taken there by this hostile entity which has then abandoned him ditched him climbed inside its ship and presumably flown away to god knows where uh, it's just like yeah, thanks for the ride, buddy. I'll see you around sometime. And Krychek is just left in this big empty space with just himself. And it, it's horrific and haunting. And it's kind of poetic because, like, Scully was talking about how no court or no justice will be enough in order to pay back what's been taken from her. But at yeah. the same time, it sort of feels like... And then this is the thing with the X-Files, because the X-Files, as dark as it is, it has this weird, almost like humanist optimist kind of quality to it where it almost believes that things will be all right as long as people try to do the right thing so here there's a sense that like Krychek getting stranded with nothing but his own thoughts in the middle of a missile silo in North Dakota is almost like poetic justice for all the horrible things that he's done it's like the universe has sort of arranged itself so the Krychek who is this terrible human being has like somehow managed to find justice that no human court could provide there's something almost comforting in that I think I do kind of feel feel a little sorry for him just because he is the whipping boy and like i mentioned it before where he has enough luck to be part of the program where he's he keeps popping up in the conspiracy but he doesn't have enough luck to save himself from it (laughs) if i was crycheck i'd just say i quit and then live in the hills (laughs) like just stop trying lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> yeah. It's like get a job, work in an office, get a nice health plan, you know, just sort of settle yeah. down. Um, or anything else, because you keep doing this and you keep getting buried in silos, <laughs> getting your <laughs> arms cut off. <laughs> I can't, a part of me sort of wonders, is waiting for, like, I was, I was quite disappointed that the show didn't sort of commit to that and have, like, Crycheck, like, have you seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to have Crycheck like the Black Knight from that, where it's like every time he appears, something horrific happens to him. And by the end of the series, he's literally the Bionic Man. And because he just, just so won't take a hint. Yeah, yeah just stop, man. <laughs> Speaking of Krychek and uh, the guy that shot Skinner, it's just a, I think a cigarette smoking man really needs to vet his goons a little better. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you, know, you need to have like a basic aptitude test uh, for this yeah. sort of thing. 
Um, like he, but, they're killing people, but they're never the right person, or they're <laughs> they're hitting Skinner, but not doing the job. <laughs> yeah, like I feel like your solid work performance this year was like a C plus. Um, it's like, <laughs> like you uh, couldn't you need... aim at his face. You're right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, he was right in front of you. He was unarmed. You had a moment. Take a moment. Just like get be your zen self. Speaking of Cardinal, actually, because I I do I like. Like it, there's a really nice touch where it's revealed that he is a graduate of the School of the Americas, which is the training that they provided for like Latin American sort of mercenaries and sort of armed forces, which kind of plays into that whole globalization uh, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, maybe that's where Cigarette Smoking Man found him. <laughs> <laughs> it's like all, all, all the good ones are like overseas, actually doing important government work. It's like you, <laughs> this guy. This is the guy that failed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like he mostly hits his target. Target. Not always a kill shot, but uh, yeah. Part, part of me likes to imagine that, like, it, it, it's not even like a syndicate thing. It's just like the the cigarette smoking man. It's like he's basically been given a budget for his department, and it's like he's basically decided to cut corners on it. He's like, okay, well, look, if I do that, I can also, you know, buy the nice house for myself in the Hamptons if I just hire low rate goons. And like the, the well manicured man sitting there looking at the expenses, going, look, you, you put in. For you know, for top of the line assassins, and I think you, you've hit, you've literally hit none of your targets. And I'm not talking about like uh, you know, sort of like your goals for the year. I mean actual targets here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, when uh, the syndicate pulled Smoking Man in, they were chewing him out about it too. <laughs> like if this guy gets caught, we're all in trouble, and then he gets caught. <laughs> the worst thing that could happen. Yeah. It's like, how do you still work here? It's like, well, you know, it's very hard to fire somebody from this syndicate. It's like you need like you need like an overall majority and then you have to pay severance. It's really awkward, so I guess we're sort of stuck with him. But you know, just just bear with it. Yeah, it, there's a lot of really great sort of middle management stuff where you would love to be like a fly on the wall at like syndicate meetings and not just like the cool syndicate meetings where we see where they're all like well you know you tried to kill him and you failed it's more like okay so like we're doing we're organizing a bowling league uh this <laughs> time and uh we have a soldier we have like a the well manicured man's daughter bake some cookies so uh to help raise money for her girl scouts so uh you know take what you will leave a dollar in the jar and uh we'll sort it all out yeah, maybe his manservant needs a spinoff. <laughs> They're sort of dealing with this stuff and also like picking up dry cleaning. I like that there's something very middle management about the syndicate because ultimately it's revealed that that's what they are. They are basically middle management for the much bigger sort of threat that's coming or the, like the, the more serious sort of players in the game, that they're basically just administrative workers. And there's a real sense watching the show, particularly in the third season, that like this is what these people are. They're middle. That's why they're not especially like ambitious or creative where they have like a they, they're basically bureaucrats they have like a set number of like pre-programmed responses to things i mean there's a great line from i think is it it's either the blessing way or paperclip where the well manicured man's like you know basically is there any sol any problem to which your sol immediate solution would not be to throw more bullets at it and <laughs> you can you get that real sense with them that they they don't really think laterally they just have a set way of doing things and that's how things get done I think this kind of did highlight that point to Mulder because when he was talking to the well-manicured man in the park, you could tell Mulder wasn't really that impressed. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> like, like, I already knew all that. I thought you were supposed to be really connected. <laughs> I love the idea that Mulder spent his entire life sort of chasing down this conspiracy. And in the third season, he sort of gets a peek at it. And it's really not that impressive. Like, that's Just a it? Bunch of guys. <laughs> yeah. it's like, you, you guys aren't even really good at killing people. <laughs> Which is kind of terrifying because they have all this info and they still can't do that much. <laughs> I mean, uh, to be honest, I think there there is sort of precedent in in history, and I think that Carter and his writers are doing this sort of intentionally. And in that, like, you have you hear all these stories again, like the MK Ultra experiments and stuff like that, where it seems like the people who were doing these horrible things, like, literally weren't doing they weren't doing them competently. Like, it, it's one thing to be evil and to be competent. It's another thing to be, like, evil and massively incompetent and have people, like, throwing themselves out windows and committing suicide and, like, mixing stuff with drinks because you've got no idea what the effects of it are. And, I, I like, there's a bit of sort of, like, almost truth in television in the way that the syndicate's portrayed. Because I think that if you look at, like, even, I think... And again, I don't want this to become an overly political podcast, but like you look at things like the, the current scandal that's taking place in the United States uh, with regards to like certain members of the administration, whether or not they are or not complicit in certain other things that have been happening. And you look at how that unfolds and it's like when you're organizing a conspiracy 
people are terrible at organizing conspiracies. It's like the worst possible chain of decisions executed in the clumsiest manner possible. Like, if they were trying to do this thing that it appears that they might possibly have done, they did it in the worst way imaginable. The way Chris Carter wrote, I think he really nailed it because uh, you have that kind of example, but, you know, reality is kind of subjective in these kind of situations where whoever's controlling the syndicate or anything like they can bend the narrative and people are just accepting it and that's why it's up to people like Mulder who want the truth and they're willing to do the work and dig in and I mean it's I mean obviously it's never the most comfortable choice to make because they go through some terrible stuff but I guess it's worth it in the end because you know he just has that drive and desire and ambition. Don't panic, nothing is wrong with the episode, this is just me, Tony Black, cutting in uh, because I was a bit absent-minded and forgot to send Darren over the uh, feedback from the X-Files basement group, so I'm going to cut in for a few minutes before we head back to uh, Darren and Chris to wrap things up uh, to talk about uh, fan feedback from the X-Cast podcast listeners all about Pipe and Rue and Apocrypha. Uh, so let's uh, kick things off with uh, Maciek. Gutkowski, I'm sorry if I've mispronounced your name there, uh, Maciek. Um, but yeah, this uh, he says this two-parter is the beginning of the real rise for the Krychek character as an independent force in the story, and both the writing of the character and Nicholas Lee's acting is superb. I think there's some weight to that, really, you know, in that Krychek really does stand out in this episode as really, you know, emerging fully into the Rat Boy persona, because we didn't see him much in, you know, Anasazi or The Blessing Way or things like that. So this really sort of sets him out in, in there and then gives him that wonderful ending which you know at the time I don't think any of us thought how the hell is he going to get out of that silo but you know he did uh, spoilers Adam Silver uh, one of our uh, regular patrons uh, says I like it how it follows up on both the digital tape Crychick makes off within paperclip and the UFO found in Nisei uh, that continuity really contributes to season 3 having the best run of mythology episodes now this triggered a little bit of discussion that I was involved in uh, on the basement group about whether it was the same UFO that we saw in uh, Nisai which I think was called the Talipus but apparently it's it was and uh, we did a little bit of back and forth on it and uh, Adam says Mulder makes the connection that the Piper Maru's original position is where the Talipus was where it when it pulled up the UFO uh, which is why the syndicate has the UFO in Pipe Maru and Apocrypha. The French found the wreckage of the pilot infected with the black oil, the alien that was aboard this UFO. After it infects Crychek, it exchanges the digital tape to Cigarette Smoking Man for its UFO. So yeah, it does connect. And that was something that hadn't really connected in my head, actually, that Nisei and, and this episode, in terms of that UFO, because it wasn't really about the UFO in Nisei, was it? it that, was, that was there, but it was more about the EBE and the train and things like that. So it's clear that like uh, people like Frank Spotnitz and Chris Carter sort of had these two sort of stories in the back of their mind and that they were they were both connected but that's that's interesting it's something that hadn't really clicked in my head so it's a good observation there sarah devy compt another one of our uh, illustrious patrons says scully's anger about melissa is just wonderful to watch i could only relate to that if my sister were to be shot i would want to find justice even though i would not feel peaceful something they should have done is follow the path of her grief of course justice won't bring her back um, and with the conspiracy, it's hard to find a true justice because so many people are involved. It's not only Krychek and Luis Cardinal; it's all of them at the t- it's all of them at the top of the government. That is what the saddest thing about this is, because even though they arrest the guy who killed her sister, the ones who really killed her will never be arrested. And it's true. This is this obviously the the good subplot of this two parter, which is all about Scully's frustration. You know, maybe we bury the dead alive. You know with Melissa uh, so it's it, it is true I, I I think Gillian Anderson does a really good job with with her frustrations here and her anger um, about about how she feels about Melissa and that this is never really going to be wrapped up and given justice as it should be so no it's it is it is really good Jeremy Daniels and one of our patrons sort of ties into that really and talks about I really like the extra thematic layer of conscious being the voices of the dead in quote marks it plays really well alongside the black oil story and adds some real weight and that's true, you know, it kind of, it, it sort of gives it a, you know, a, a tether, which uh, goes sort of, it, it has a certain level of allegory and tether beyond, you know, the simple mythology alien aspect of, of the story. So, yeah, I think I think he's on something there. So that's really true. We'll give the last word to the uh, ins- ever insightful and ever incisive uh, Matt Latham when uh, he says, 
If it was Dave, the Black Oil would have been too scared to even attempt to control a cry check. <laughs> Um, so he's calling for a, a hashtag, what would Dave have done uh, in the ongoing uh, saga of Dave Krychek, which, you know, um, we may well, you know, explore one day and take this to, to its logical conclusion. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you, everyone who uh, contributed to uh, giving some feedback on what they thought about Piper Maru and Apocrypha as a two-parter. Um, do keep doing that. Do keep uh, letting us know what you thought about these episodes as we go through them, because it always does add a little bit extra dimension to our episodes so yeah i'm gonna zip off now and hand you back to the uh wonderful hosts darren and chris so uh i'll see you soon and trust no one so i think that about wraps it up if people are looking for a bit more chris irish in their life where can they find you i'm working on the x-files lexicon it's a both online and you can search the same name on uh, Facebook and we have a group there too. It has a nice repository of information, all X-Files related. And we're always expanding and working on projects and doing interviews. Yeah, and you've got some really, really great interviews as well with like cast and crew and production people. It, it's a really useful resource. Um, it really, really is. I'm Darren underscore Mooney at Twitter. Um, I do various things online. I co-host uh, a, an Irish film podcast called Scan On, which releases in theory every Thursday, uh, where we talk about the weekend films. So we discuss like the new releases, what we watched this week, and the top ten at the Irish box office. Uh, I know that this is a podcast that's aimed at an international audience, but if you want a bit of an Irish flavor uh, to your film discussion. You can you can search us for Scan On, which is spelled S C A N N A I N, uh, and you can find us on Google that way. Uh, but don't worry, next week uh, we'll be back where myself and Tony will actually be talking about Pusher, which is one of my favorite episodes, and I suspect from my interactions with Tony may just may be one of his favorite episodes ever as well so i'm really really looking forward to that but anyway join us uh online we have the the xcast uh podcast basement where members of the group can also talk and discuss the episodes and the show as we rewatch and just general x-files related topics as well um and uh yeah join us next week but until then remember trust no one The X-Cast and X-Files podcast is produced and presented by Tony Black, alongside a dedicated group of podcasters and X-Files fans. You can find us on Twitter at The X-Cast, and on Facebook if you type in The X-Cast, or at our group, X-Files Basement, an X-Cast podcast fan group, where you can continue the discussion about all things Mulder and Scully. If you want to support The X-Cast further, you can now subscribe and become a patron of the show on Patreon. On Google, just type patreon.com forward slash the Xcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll see all of our tiers, subscription options and perks, which include early access to episodes, bonus content such as commentaries on X-Files episodes, access to a patron chat zone, and even appearing on one of our patron roundtable discussions. We would appreciate any support you can give the show, so just go to patreon.com forward slash the xcast to find out more our title music is provided courtesy of will a who you can find on twitter at i am will a y e okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.